the episode. Before we begin, remember that you can ask us a question and we will answer it on the podcast at the end of the episode. You can ask us by emailing us at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, please like, share, subscribe, and leave us a review. Today we are discussing the readings for the 25th Sunday of Ordinary Time, Year A. The prophet Isaiah implores us to seek God while we still have time. St. Paul says that the ultimate purpose of life is to magnify Christ, and Christ offers us a parable that seems to defy the human sense of reason and justice. But first, the sacred and the profane. (laughs) So on Thursday of this week, Thursday the 21st, We'll be celebrating the Feast of St. Matthew. Yes. And the gospel for that day is, of course, the call of St. Matthew from his from his, his own gospel. Um, we also have the famous painting. Caravaggio. Uh, the Caravaggio call of St. Matthew. Yep. Actually, uh, I have that painting uh, in my rectory. It's at, I serve at St. Matthew, so it's at the office in St. Matthew's. And it's also in my office at Charlotte Catholic. And so I'm I'm surrounded by that painting constantly. So it's it's trying to say something to you. It is, it is. Or maybe I just don't know. Um, my my knowledge of artwork is limited, and so I just <laughs> <laughs> I know what I like. I buy it and then I just hang yeah. it up. You know. Now, uh, actually, um, all of those images were out of my control. Like they were there before I got there. So um. So even more, it's trying to tell you something. Yeah, I know. I stop stop counting money. And right. <laughs> <laughs> when signs appear, when symbols appear, you have to heed them. Yes, they're saying, yeah. As opposed to the ones that we choose ourselves. Yep. Uh, no, but that's a, yeah, it's a great, I, I always love the um, Apostles' Feast Days that we celebrate. Uh, typically, the Gospels are around, uh, like for, for, for Matthew, it's his own personal calling. Other ones, it's just when um, Christ gathers them on the mountain and, and names them his apostles. Uh, but it's always a good reminder of just our apostolic roots um, and, you know, our church's identity mm-hmm. in the apostolic foundation. So it's a yeah. good, good feast day. Yeah. The gospel for the day is a, it's a very beautiful one because you have the, the classic come follow me or follow me. Mm-hmm. And then Matthew immediately gets up, you know, as many church fathers say as a an impulse of grace, like a, an immediate response to grace yeah. that Christ calls and he answers and I think that's beautifully depicted in Caravaggio because you have the interplay of light and darkness, and Christ, in particular, is illuminated. Yeah. In in that painting, so no, it's, no, it's, it's Christ is in the darkness. Well, he has a, his face is illuminated. Yeah, a bit. yeah. That well, yeah, right. He, well, what's illuminated of Christ is his hand, which is really interesting. Like that's the brightest yeah. spot. Yeah. And so it's almost like he's pointing at Matthew, saying, right. like, you know. Um, so well, you, I guess you have. The interplay of light is one from the call from Christ, mm-hmm. you know, this this pointing of calling you to follow me, um, in a sense, like to look upon my face. You know, I think that's kind of like an old uh, Semitic idiom. You know, to look upon the face of God, to follow Him, to yeah. know Him, and then Matthew is bathed in a little bit of light, as like yeah. this, like, right? Said, so like a responding the, to grace. Caravaggio was like a master of. Um, Shadow and light, mm-hmm. and so in in his images, it's not just you know the shadows are not flat and the light is not just you know overexposed. It's there's lots of contrast. Um, even in the figures that have light, um, there's shadowy you know aspects to their mm-hmm. figures. But the, my favorite um, 
my favorite idea in that painting is that you have the entire image is slashed in half. Matthew on the left, Christ on the right. And most of the light is pouring through a window that's above the, um, the, the scene. And it's casted on Matthew. And then Christ is, yeah, you're right. His, some of his face and his hand is caught in the light. But he's actually mostly hidden in shadow. And you would think that it's Christ who would be in total light, calling Matthew to come out of his, you know, the darkness of his sin, right? Um, but I think what Caravaggio is trying to portray is that the beginning of conversion can often look like it's stepping out into the unknown, right? Because mm-hmm. um, it's funny because you have Matt's Matt. I just call Matt, say Matthew Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be confused with Matt Hylum, right? Right. Was, I think yeah, yes. we're th- we're thinking yeah. <laughs> My brother Matt. Your brother. Um, you know, Maddie, um, St. <laughs> Matthew, while he's cast in light, he's also surrounded with his friends and his money. He is like in the middle of his comfort zone. That is who he is. That's where he takes comfort. And Christ is in the shadows calling him out of his warmth essentially. So this idea of like come follow me, step out of your comfort zone, enter into the darkness when, and then you'll be opened up to light, right? Right. And so the light of Christ is often first through a passing of shadow, uh, going out into the unknown, right? That hero's journey, the adventure. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his Till We Have Faces, wrote, um, holy places are dark places, right? Holy places are dark places. I love that imagery. Uh, and he's absolutely right. The, the, the divine can be mysterious. It could be something to be scared of, right? There's fear when approaching the divine. Uh, and rightly so. You know, God is God. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a holiness and, a, and an other, otherliness uh, about the divine. Uh, but, that, that, and that's the, that's the beautiful paradox, is that, again, once you step out into the shadows, enter the shadows, uh, you have that faith to step out of your comfort zone then you can be opened up to more light than you experienced in your past life. Right. Um, While we often want to see the, the divine in terms of light, there is certainly a tradition of seeing the divine in darkness. Yeah, as, you know, your favorite mentor, yes. John of the Cross. Yes. Right? yes. Juan de la Cruz, as he would say. Right. <laughs> right, well, you know, and he gets it from even older traditions going back at least to, I mean, beyond him, but... The pseudo Dionysius, yeah, you know, it talks about kind of the 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 negative way or you know the the way of of darkness and such. So I, I think you're right to point out that there's just enough light because you have to know who it, who's calling you. It's not a, it's not this like complete right. step no, out into darkness. So you have enough light to see that it's Christ who calls you, but you're ultimately stepping out onto a path unknown yeah. that you ha- you've never gone before. Right. So there's just enough to keep you going. Exactly. And this is St. John the Cross as well, you know, the kind of the, the crack of light. Like you have just enough. Just enough to, it's almost like a, a lantern in a, right. in, a, in a forest. Right. You just see enough and you can take that couple, of, you can take those couple of steps, but ultimately you can't see, um, you know, a hundred yards in yeah. front of you. Um, yeah. What's in- also interesting about that painting is that Christ's hand looks a lot like the um, hand of, it's Adam and God in um, Michelangelo's creation. And so uh, I think there's also this sense that 
life in Christ brings you total life. It's a new creation. Yes, right? yes. Christ so, is calling him to a, a new way of life, yeah. and and in grace, uh, and becoming almost a new new person or yeah, a new, new being. New, exactly. Yeah. yeah, a new man. Right. So yeah, it's a, it's Saint Matthew's um great character. I don't know. Have you seen the um, Jesus of Nazareth, nineteen seventy seven mini? Series? I don't think so. Um, my our, our family tradition was to always watch it during Holy Week. Um, ever since I was 12 years old. Uh, it's still my favorite portrayal of Christ on a screen. Um, Passion of the Christ was, you know, was very artistic, but that's, you know, a moment of his life, most important, of course, but uh, this is his whole life. I won't get into The Chosen, um, but anyway, <laughs> um, the, the, the Jesus of Nazareth, um, the, the, the character of Matthew plays really well off of the character of St. Peter, uh, where they're, they begin as mortal enemies, uh, which, you know, it, it kind of makes sense where you have Matthew, the tax collector, very calculated, uh, and then Peter is this brash, you know, fisherman. Um, and they be- again, they begin as enemies, and when Christ invites Matthew uh, for dinner, right, I-, I will come to your house and dine with you, uh, Peter is wondering why Christ is doing this. and But then there's a recognition of both of their sinfulness and they're able to connect over Christ. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful characterization of, of the apostles in that yeah. series. Well, so. it's very scriptural from that exact gospel because Christ calls him, St. Matthew gets up and follows him and then has him over for dinner. Yeah, uh, right. Matthew has Christ over for dinner and that's the question is, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Yeah. And then Christ responds, this is one of my one of my favorite lines, you know, those who are well do not need a physician, but the sick do. Yeah. Go and learn the meaning of these words, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Right. I do not call the righteous, but sinners. Yeah. And what's beautiful about the TV series is that they gave that idea, why does he dine with tax collectors and sinners, to St. Peter, who was wondering why is he dining with you know, St. Matthew, the tax collector. Then Peter recognizes that he's a sinful man. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, even the people who pose that question, why do you dine with sinners and tax collectors? Are you blind? Are, are you that blind to, to not recognize that you yourself are a sinner, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, as if you are totally healthy. You know, it's funny that Christ in his answer doesn't even entertain that. He's like, I'm, I've come for the sick. Uh, but the I think that the the layered answer there is that we're all sick, right? We're all in need of of salvation. Um, so, yeah, yeah, good good feast day. That's, that's Thursday, right? Yeah. Yes, it's yeah. on Thursday, the 21st. So that was the sacred. Now for the very profane. <laughs> the very profane? <laughs> yes. Where, where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Apple's new commercial. Oh, they... yes, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I meant to watch that again. I saw it when it came out. Um, and I was, uh, well, yeah, what, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Well, so it's, just for some background, if you haven't seen it, yeah, go watch it. Um, but it's it's Apple's commercial for showing that they are trying to get to, was it zero carbon emissions or net zero? Yeah. And so the scene is they're, they're at, an Apple office, everyone's kind of scurrying around. Everyone's at a very long business or a very long um, kind of corporate table. Mm-hmm. 
And there's all this whispering. He's, yeah, she's here. She's here. Yeah. She's coming. She's coming. <laughs> and then suddenly a woman appears at the end of the table. And everyone turns in awe. And then I think it's Tim Cook, the president of Apple, says, you know, welcome Mother Nature. Yeah. And it's a commercial about how Apple is going to appease Mother Nature. Appease the gods. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, literally, because yeah, yeah, you have this scene of almost divine judgment or divine counsel. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost something out of Job. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, like Apple is at the, the table of, of counsel, and they've called on Mother Nature to come and, and listen to the things they're going to do for her. And throughout the... I, I'm not exactly sure what kind of image they were trying to portray for Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. Is like Mother Nature is is good or not? Because right, right. It, she's kind of ticked off the whole time. Like yeah. she seems angry, and so if the idea is no, Mother Nature is good, right? It's like well, she doesn't seem very happy. They keep saying, you know, we're going to do this, and she re- rebukes them. Oh, we're going to do this, mm-hmm. and she scoffs, and you know, later. She's eventually appeased in a sense. But I think it's Tim Cook asks, how was the weather coming in? Yeah. And she, right. and then, you know, off in the distance, there's a thunder cloud and thunderclap and lightning. And, <laughs> and this, this cloud moves in front of the sun and makes things dark. So an image of anger. <laughs> yeah, right, know? right. And but she said, what was her answer? Like, the weather is the, what I choose? The weather is however... Like, I wish it to be, or yeah, however right, I choose. Right. And, you know, I thought, that that's true. Yeah, that, yeah that, But that's the, the yeah. fickleness of Mother Nature. Yeah. Is when you need water, she withholds it from you. Yeah. And when you don't want water, she floods. It's very, the, the imagery is very much uh, like how the Greek gods used to perceive, uh, the, the Greeks used to perceive their gods, right? If you're pious then you appease the wrath of the gods and they might not mess with you. They might, though, because, you know, the gods are the gods and they like right. toying with humanity. Right. But it's just like, wow, they've been reading a lot of Plato or something. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there was a lot of unintentional sy- uh, symbolism uh, right. in that commercial. Um, uh, you know, the idea that Mother Nature is not perceived as this benevolent force, but something that she, her, her, her character almost stands in judgment of their actions, right? And so I think what's unsaid there is that there's a standard of morality that companies, society, people have to abide by, and that Apple is doing its part to abide by these rules. And so, you know, that whole God symbolism, the God symbolism, uh, I think it's it's clear that nature is Apple's god, right? And this is this is their highest value, is to is to sacrifice at the altar of something that's not God, ultimately, right? Uh, right. So well, that was you know Tim Cook cowering and you know kind of in fear and and daring to to stand up to her at the end of the commercial and say. You know, this is what we're gonna do, and this is all the things we've been doing, and you know, we guarantee it. I promise. Was that he was accountable to some higher power? Yeah, exactly. That Apple is accountable 
in some sense, not even to to people, yeah. but to to Mother Nature, mm-hmm. which I guess maybe indirectly to people that they well, right. And so there's a lot of contradictions uh, with this idea of uh, appeasing Mother Nature. You know, first of all, it. I mean, okay. For, for, I'm trying to like wrap my head around all these things. The cobalt mines, and, and you know the the, sure. the vast um, inhumane things that Apple supports in creating their products is. I I don't know if they're just trying to say like look away from this while we're doing this good, or I don't know what's there. But it, as is the case with many large corporations, they're not as innocent and clean as we would like to believe, or as they portray themselves in the media, right? Uh, so it's it's almost a little hypocritical to say, like, look how good we're doing. Sometimes I just want big corporations to s- just sell me the product and don't talk about all your philanthropy and all this stuff, right? Um, you know, Starbucks is another one where, you know, they're just very proud of the things that they support. And it's like, just, just make your coffee, you know, just make your coffee. Anyway, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's one thing. Um, the other is just this idea of environmentalism in general. I, you know, as Catholics, we are we're called to care for nature. This mm-hmm. is not, um, Absolutely. you know, a lot of people like to, you know, criticize uh, Laudato Si uh, and, and Francis's encyclical on the environment. Um, but he didn't write it for nothing. And I think that there is some things that, you know, are that we can glean from this idea of caring for nature. Um, it's not one or the other. It's like, you know, oh, you're, you're a conspiracy theorist or you don't believe in climate change. That's too polar um, for... Catholics, there is a sense that we have to care for nature. Um, we've been given dominion over creation, but not. But but and here's a caveat: is that it's not for creation's sake, and we don't sacrifice our own humanity to serve nature. That would be a shortcoming of what we're called to do with nature, right? Uh, and, and I think that this is where, as Catholics, if we're trying to be discerning with the environment, I think. One litmus test to see where we're going wrong is to is to say is is to ask the question: Is this effort in 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 protecting our environment detrimental to humans or not? Right? Is it going to allow for the flourishing of humanity or not? Because there are sects of environmentalists who will propose that human humans are a cancer to this species uh, to to the to the um, to the environment, um, we need less humans. I've heard of some stories years ago where uh, a family uh, killed themselves because they knew that their 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 um, carbon footprint was too large, right? Or that's what they feared, and they thought that the world would be better off without them. And so they just—it was like a ritual where they just killed themselves. That is not what we mean by caring for the environment, right? Uh, but it seems like in this, going back to the Apple commercial, when you have Mother Nature as the ultimate judge, then things are bound to go wrong because you're not putting things in its proper place in a hierarchy. Um, anyway, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean that's a an archetypal struggle is is nature versus civilization. Yeah, and yeah. even nature versus humans because while there's certainly a part of us that is tied to the natural world, there's no doubt about it. There's also a part of us that is very, very much above nature. Yeah, distinct from nature, and distinct yeah. from nature, and is in fact 
working against us. As much as maybe the people at Burning Man want us to return to nature, we, yeah. we, we aren't. Mm-hmm. We aren't animals purely. Yeah, exactly. And we don't just live purely in nature. We live in societies and civilizations, often uh, at a archetypal struggle with, with Mother Nature. And then in the end, Mother Nature is working against all of us. Mm-hmm. We, we die. Yeah. That our nature gives out. So in the end, she does swallow us back up. Yeah. And I, I, I think Apple is hitting on, you know, the most ancient and primordial aspect of religion, which is sacrifice to appease the gods. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they want to appease Mother Nature because floods and hurricanes, all these things are because she's mad. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, this is actually just who she is. Right. Because as, as Peterson pointed out, you know, as every anybody's ever studied <laughs> uh, symbolism or archetypal things, it's every, every archetype has two sides. Has a good aspect and a bad aspect. You know, the hero, the father, the mother, ev- all of them. Right, controlling, nurturing. Right. Both. Yeah, yeah. And so there is a dark aspect to this movement, and it, be- and it can become very anti-human. Yeah, exactly. And that's where it certainly goes right. Uh, I do think we should take care of the planet. I do think their pollution is real. That's mm-hmm. a thing. And I, I think that it can fall under it. I think this is what Francis was trying to do, was trying to place uh, environmental concerns in the kind of hierarchy of pro-life issues. Yeah, it's not right. at the top, you know, necessarily, but it is part of, well, you know, we, we need to care for human life. That means clean air, clean mm-hmm. drinking water, um, clean... Uh, soil and such, or soil yeah. that that can produce uh, crops and food. I think all that's true, but it it does show this uh, Apple. This commercial to me showed this impulse that you know Carl Jung would say the archetype must be incarnated somehow. Mm. It, it, you know that the archetype must become symbolic, and in this commercial, you had it in embodied in a person, and everybody's all their heads are fixed on her. Right. You know, none of them are wandering it's their their attention is all focused onto this one woman who is mother nature in worship yeah adoration attention yeah right highest attention yeah um but yeah a couple more points um we could do a whole episode on this because so it's so fascinating but the idea that uh if you appease mother nature less bad things will happen in the environment i think that's it's almost like a fideistic way to look at the world. Uh, you know, if you replace Mother Nature with God, you know, oh, is this hurricane as a, as a result of our sin, right? Uh, I know, like, when a lot of um, big natural disasters strike major cities, a lot of people will wonder, like, what did they do to deserve this? That's a, that's a natural question. And it goes back to the book of Job, right? Um, what did Job do to deserve this? But... As it relates to nature, we understand that nature is free in a sense that it's it's free to act according to its own nature, right? It's um, there are certain laws that nature has embedded within it that acts according to its own um, nourishment, right, uh, or fulfillment. And Saint Paul says that even nature itself groans as it awaits its fulfillment, right? Um, well, how does he put it? Uh, it groans in labor pains until uh, it reaches its ultimate end. And so we are awaiting a new heaven and a new earth, a redeemed earth. 
and the world that we live in, when we talk about the fall of creation, it's not just man that fell, but all of creation fell. And so as nature tries to reach for its fulfillment, uh, it's going to go wrong. You know, there's going to be things like natural disasters. Um, and it's all part of this, again, this, this freedom that went awry in the fall. Man's fault, yes, but it affects all of creation. And so, you know, just to think that like, well, if we just, you know, reduce our emissions, then that will, you know, help the weather to an extent, yes. But there's another aspect that things are just out of our control. And that does require more discernment, too, because you can't just be like, well, things are out of our control, so we don't have to do anything about it, right? Um, there's, there's things that we can do again. But I think in the grand scheme of things, until, until those new heavens and a new earth descends upon us, we're going to be beholden to nature's cruelty, right? Red tooth and claw is um, uh, oh, Alfred. Wait, who is that poet? Who said that? I don't know. Uh, some poet said that. But the other thing I wanted to mention um, was that I think that the fact that you brought up that, you know, mankind is distinct from nature is one of the strongest proofs, I think, for a belief in something that's transcendent. Uh, you know, why do we call when man builds something like he builds a house? We say that that's artifice. But when a bird builds a nest or a beaver builds a dam, we say that that's natural, right? Why can't we look at the house of a man, a man's house and a bird's nest and say that they're both natural? There is a natural distinction that we have for artificial things and natural things. Uh, and this idea that man is a cancer to the planet or to the environment. It's like, well, if we're just nothing more than flesh and blood, then aren't we just other things among nature, right? There's something very distinct about, like you said, distinct about man that separates it from nature. And I think that that, well, ultimately what that is, is a, um, it's the existence of a, of a soul. There's something um, immaterial about man. Uh, and it's his rationality, uh, reason, uh, that would manipulate nature to to bring it to more than what nature was in the beginning. Uh, and so the cities that we have and, and, and the technology that we have, um, that's man imposing reason onto nature to make it then artificial, right? right? Art um, is it's reason and nature kind of together. Right. Um, well, I mean, the, the, the polis, the society, the city is natural to man. Man is a, a know, social being. A social yeah. being. So... Yeah when he creates communities and when he creates buildings and such, that's actually him fulfilling his nature mm-hmm. of what a human is. And I would say, I, I don't know if I'm going to word this exactly correctly, but a natural disaster doesn't exist apart from humans. Mm, so right. when... A, right, when, if there's a landslide out in right. you know, a, a random mountain with no humans around it, it's, is it's, that a disaster? Right, tectonic yeah. plates... Uh, shifting and mm-hmm. causing earthquakes is actually just the world, the planet doing what it does. Yeah. You know, God wills that the planet generate and regenerate itself. Mm-hmm. It, it wills that things are born, they they live, they die, they decay, they're reborn, you know, this this self-regeneration. And it's only because of man that we have a value judgment on forest fires and that right. we have a value judgment on landslides. It's 
if a flood happens and it wipes out a village, that's a horrific thing. Mm -hmm. That's a natural disaster with horrific consequences only because man has the moral judgment to say that. Yes. But yeah. it's not something in nature mm -hmm. that by itself. But any more thoughts or would you like to? Um, there was one more about – so when man is caring for nature, his goal ought to be from a Catholic perspective to bring it back to God, right? To, to make it better than it was before and to then offer it up to the divine. And when that divine is cut off, then man then uses nature to serve his own wants and purposes. And this is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden, uh, where, you know, the six days of creation, everything was leading up to man. Man was like the pinnacle of creation. And then he was meant to use all those things that God created in service of God. And it's, that was like the completion of Exitus et Reditus, right? right. Um, out, everything comes out of God and then it goes back to God. But man cut that off by serving his own purposes and his own twisted desires. And so that's when the world fell and division happened and, you know, history <laughs> happened after that. What, what I'm afraid of with this environmentalist ideology, uh, as shown in the Apple commercial, is that when we do the same thing, we're cutting the divine off from all of our efforts, then we're just going to get back into this cycle of the material and and it's not going it's, it, it's not going to lead us to a place of ultimate fulfillment um the cycle will not be complete we're not returning everything back to god but we're returning things of our own we're returning everything to our own made up gods you know mother nature now is the god that we serve that's not god itself and so right. yeah the return of paganism yeah beautiful interesting <laughs> all right well anyway, that's, yeah let's yeah. let's move on um, so our first reading for this week, the 25th Sunday of Ordinary Time, is from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55. Um, in this particular passage, Isaiah is calling the Israelites to conversion, that in order to return to their homeland, they must return to God, they must seek him. And the Lord allows himself to be found, and he doesn't judge men too harshly if they're willing to turn to him, if they're willing to ask for forgiveness. So, in other words, the call to repentance is kind of grounded on the goodness of God and his abundant mercy, mm -hmm. his willingness to pardon. But man, for his part, has to take this opportunity to reach out and to ask God for forgiveness. So yeah. forgiveness is there, but you have to ask for it. Um, so the first half of the reading, kind of break it up in two parts, is seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he is near. Let the scoundrel forsake his ways and the, and the wicked his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord for mercy, for our God is a generous and forgiving God. Or our God is who is generous and forgiving. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to hit on this idea of, of seeking God while he may be found. Because on one hand, it, it, I feel like this is a part of perhaps existential theology you know that you 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 want to seek god but wh where is where does he go when he where, says where do you like, look for him yeah, yeah right where right. where do you look for god yeah. and and what does it mean to to find him where, where does he go you know this is 
this is clearly some sort of, you know, poetic or I feel like I said existential language because it seems as though God has to be found, that he's somewhere out there. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he's also apparently within me, if not by grace, at least by, as my creator. I think was that in, by eminence or imminence? Imminence. Imminence. Yeah. So you, you get a lot of this if you read St. Augustine's Confessions that he has many different, in the beginning of his, uh, of his confessions, but throughout these kind of meditations on how do creatures find God? And it's because on one hand, God is most powerful. He's, he's supremely just and he's higher than the heavens, but yet he is hidden and intimately present to me. Yeah. So he, he's both of these things at that's, once. That's the paradox is that God is supremely transcendent, but also supremely imminent, right? Uh, that he, like, we use this imagery of the heavens above us, above the the heavens of the heavens. Uh, but then we also use this imagery that God is within, right? The image of God within you, right? Uh, and so that is the paradox. Uh, I was thinking of, as you were talking, a um, a poem by Sir Philip Sidney. Uh, his last, it, it's this poem about uh, a poet who is um, struggling for words to uh, write. He, he's struggling for inspiration. And he's looking out into nature to try to, to, to find inspiration to write his poem, and he's not able to do it. But once he sits down, he says, uh, uh, the, the, the last two lines of the poem, uh, it says, he writes, Fool said my muse to me, look in thy heart and write. Uh, and the, the idea that, you know, for an artist, inspiration comes from within, right? Not necessarily from without. Yes, you can be inspired by your experiences and, you know, the beauty of nature and all those things. But ultimately, if you're not internalizing that and then looking within yourself, you're not going to find the source of all beauty, right? Um, beauty with a capital B, which is God himself. Um, and so just as the artist looks within his heart, so too do we Christians find God, I think, best, most effectively, within ourselves. And that's a very, like, as you said, an existential way of looking at it is a very apt way of putting it. Um, I've heard, you know, Augustine is described as kind of like a, a, a proto-existentialist <laughs> before yes, the existential movement. proto-proto. <laughs> proto-proto, right? Because Kierkegaard, I guess, would be a proto-existentialist. But anyway, um, yeah, but he was touching on these, these ideas that the existential, existentialist would, you know, almost 2,000 years later, uh, that God is best found from within. Um, yeah. St. John of the Cross talks about this um, kind of humor, humorously when he says that people will you know, tire themselves out by going to all these different churches and they'll go on these pilgrimages and they'll wear themselves out when mm. they should just look within. Yeah. You know, they, they, they're looking everywhere else to find God on these pilgrimages and long journeys. But if you just turn inward in prayer, then you find him. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what yeah. St. Augustine says, right? You know, we seek God in prayer and then he comes to meet us in prayer. And ultimately he gives us he comes to meet us in the humanity of Christ. Right, right. And it's, you know, going off of that theme of, I think it's very wise counsel, that you don't necessarily need to go on these pilgrimages or leave your home to find God. But I think we could take that a step further, and especially, you know, for those who are striving to live holy lives and who exercise uh, a habit of prayer 
day in and day out, sometimes we can treat even prayer like an external thing. Where it's like, if I just add an extra novena, right? Or if I just do this practice, um, or if I, you know, even if I try to get to church every single day, then I can find God more. To a certain extent, yes. But we have to be careful that we're not allowing these external practices to block us from that internal conversion, right? And so even prayer itself, if we're not careful, we can treat it as looking for God outside. Mm -hmm. Um, Because ultimately prayer is not just um, reciting words. It's it's that heart-to-heart and, and, you know, as... as, um, classically put, and it's raising the mind and heart up to God. Right. Uh, and, and if that connection is not there, we can babble like the pagans do, right? But we're not going to get anywhere. So, right. right. Yeah. And even that first step of prayer, it, it, if it's authentic, I think goes to the point of this first reading, uh, let the, the wicked forsake his way and his thoughts and turn to the Lord for mercy. Mm-hmm. So you kind of begin in this pursuit of God humbly. Yes, exactly. You know, realizing on one hand, God is within me and he dwells within me uh, as my creator and sustainer. However, he he still is owed respect. Right. Yeah, exactly. And the idea of turning from, the wicked turning from his thoughts, turning to the Lord for mercy, I think should be the heart of every prayer, like the sense of petition that everything we have comes from God. And we're not worthy of that. And and there still needs to be a, again, that conversion of turning away from our old ways, um, asking for forgiveness constantly. Uh, that This is why the liturgy begins in, uh, you know, with the penitential rite, like, you know, recognizing that we are not where we ought to be. Uh, and so it begins with the confidior, right? Uh, asking for mercy, to make us as worthy as we can be, to then approach God in unity, in communion. So, Yeah. The second half is, is, uh, is, connect- is again, always connected to these thoughts. So you, um, in the first half, we had this idea of the wicked should forsake his thoughts. And it's almost as if because, in the second half of the reading is, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my, your ways my ways, says the Lord. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways above your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. Yeah, I've heard this passage uh, in the context of a lecture that uh, Anthony Esselin, uh, he, he's known for translating the Divine Comedy. Uh, he gave a lecture on, I believe it was the, the concept of... Uh, Adventure uh, and and, and li- in literature as being theological, mm-hmm. and he quoted that passage as saying that we're not meant to just stay on one side while God is across the gap on another side, and this is something that uh, I think a lot of people can fall into, saying that well God is God and I am not and. I just resign myself to the will of God and I have to accept that there exists this great chasm between me and God. But if we're taking this passage as a whole, and as Anthony Eslin pointed out, we're called to embark on on a journey across the bridge to get to God. So 
Yes, God's ways are above our ways now, but we're called to union with God. And so there's ultimately a great sense of journeying and adventure in forsaking our old ways to, to unite ourselves with a new way. And so while, while our Lord is establishing, Isaiah is establishing this, this uh, divide between man and God, uh, we're called to bridge that gap. We're, we're, call, we're called to go on that journey. Uh, as, the, as the first half, half attests to, let the scoundrel forsake his way. Uh, almost a sense of encouraging him to go on this adventure, right? Right, right. And I, I do think that this, this part about God's ways and his thoughts is, all, is a reminder that we shouldn't always impose what we think God thinks. All, all the yes, time, or yeah. or judge the standards, our standards of thinking, as the same as God's. While I I agree, we're supposed to go on this journey, and we're supposed to uh, enter into union with God. That is the main kind of purpose of the Christian life. It there is still a a caution, not to impose too many kind of human standards on God. No, of course, right, and and that's what we see ultimately, as best explained, I think, in the Book of Job. Job, where God's answer to Job ultimately expresses this idea that my thoughts are above your thoughts. How could you possibly see all of creation from my perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And while we do try to unite our minds and our hearts to God, to not only to the best of our abilities, but in reception to grace, there's always going to exist um, a level of uh, resigning resignment, right, that we have to, um, that we have to undergo, that, that just says that like, ultimately I don't have this higher perspective, uh, right. and, and that I trust that God's ways are the right ways and are, are, the, are the just ways and true. So Right, and that's what we're going to see throughout our readings this week, is this higher perspective or higher knowledge that God has about the workings of the world and, and divine providence and divine plans and such. That humans just don't have. Mm-hmm. So you're right. There, there is a kind of narrow scope of understanding that humans have, that they have a tendency to to broaden and say, "This is how everything actually works." Yeah. Or we take our experience of reality as the totality of reality. You know, it's, I I've never seen this miracle happen. Therefore, it can't happen. Right. Right. Exactly. That reality, but we take reality to be ours as opposed to reality being. God's mm-hmm. God's possession. Right. No, that's good. And so moving on, the second reading from uh, the beginning, roughly the beginning of the Philippians, uh, we'll be reading through the Philippians, I think, for the next three weeks or so. Is that right? I didn't... It's a very anymore. short yeah. letter. Um, it's only four chapters, so... and But the, the thing is, we'll skip, we'll skip the best chapter, chapter two that we covered in uh, our episode, The Serpent and the Cross. Oh, oh we skipped that. We Did skipped we really? that, right. Okay. So, because this week it'll be, uh, I said chapter one, and then I think it jumps to either later in chapter two or chapter three. So we don't get the the Christ poem or the Christ hymn, which oh. is um, kind of a shame because uh, scholars believe that this is certainly a letter. It's a genre of letter, but really it's... It's a long meditation or exegesis on Philippians 2. 
that Christ poem. That the whole the whole letter is really that's the centerpiece of it. So mm-hmm. if you don't have that that part of the of Philippians, you kind of lose out on everything else. But wow, that's that's Come okay. On. If you you know if you someone needs to redo the lectionary here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe you can. Yeah, right. <laughs> that can be your job to redo it. But in, in this letter, Paul is um, he's imprisoned, and so he has like a little bit of a back and forth, right? He says, "Is it better for me to be alive or to be dead? You know, if I if I go on living in the flesh, I get to keep working for Christ and I get to keep keep working for you." Right. That means fruitful labor for me. Right. Yeah. But if I die, then I get to go be with Christ, and that's better. So. Which which one which one do I want here? Mm-hmm. But in the end, conduct your life worthy of the gospel. So, what Paul is asserting mainly is that the purpose of the Christian life for the Philippians should be to exalt and magnify Christ in their concrete bodily existence. Mm-hmm. So, not abstractly, almost what you were saying earlier about prayer, not as something external to them, but something lived. Mm-hmm. Through them, um, and this can be accomplished whether one lives or dies. That's that's what he's saying. It, you know, if I die, I can die for Christ, and if I live, I can live for Christ. That's Paul's motto, right? To to live for Christ, or to do all things for Christ, I should say. Um, and all of this is oriented towards living consistently with the gospel. So, as the gospel commands, their lives should conform to that. To the to the, the testimony of, of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So I guess trying to connect this to our, our first reading, I guess part of what we can do is to live consistently with the, with the gospel or with the teachings of Christ is to understand that, that God is someone who has a plan greater than what we can imagine, I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. I There's a beautiful, I think Paul here is, I think he has a very, a very healthy vision of what life is because he's resigned to the two possibilities. And he says, if I die, then good for me. I get to actually be united with Christ fully. But if I live, then I get to work for his vineyard and work in his vineyard uh, more fruitfully. And so the resignation of his life to whatever God wills, it, it seems like he's, he's living this wisdom, right? He's able to see both ends and see how both of them are uh, fruitful for not only him, but for his community as well. Uh, so oh, that, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you're right. It's um, this higher perspective, right? Because we might yeah. consider, well, if Paul dies, that's bad. Right. Because yeah. that's, that's it. Yeah. But if you are willing to enter into the, the mind of God here and say that my ways are not your ways, that in fact to depart this life and to be with Christ is far better. Yeah. As St. As Paul says. And in fact, he can continue his work there even in heaven. Right, exactly. But that's not you know, necessarily a purely human perspective right, on exactly. things. That's a perspective you would... You would need to have from revelation, or from right? God. Exactly, and like that idea of trusting that God's ways are above our ways, and they're better. <laughs> if you, if you, if that's your foundation, 
then nothing will disturb you. All things will work for the good, mm-hmm. whether you live or you die, right? Uh, and so I think Paul is, in a sense, embodying uh, Isaiah's exhortation uh, of, you know, uh, being resigned to this idea that God's ways are above our ways. And while, again, we, we can strive to know his ways as much as possible, embarking on that journey, again, there's that level of unknowing that we'll never, uh, we'll never fully reach. Um, uh, what what struck me uh, when I first read this passage um, before the podcast was this imp- impassioned uh, Paul being impassioned for for Christ. Uh, the idea for to me life is Christ and death is gain. Christ colors in his entire reality, and I love the way he says, "I long to depart this life and be with Christ, for that is far better." You know, I, I'm, re- I'm reminded of, like, Dante's encounter with Beatrice. We're just looking on her beauty. He's unable to think of anything else. Yes, you know, he's a romantic poet who's helpless, <laughs> you know, in a sense. Um, but I think it underscores what love can do and should do to the beloved uh, or to the one who loves. Whereas Don- where, where Dante was inspired to write the divine comedy and you know in the divine comedy embark on this adventure to being one with God. Paul is in a sense experienced that same experiencing that same love where anybody who's been in love would know that this life becomes almost distasteful if you are uh, if you are truly in love, right? It's almost like a, a new way of seeing the world. And Paul is so caught up in the love of Christ that you know things that Things that people do before they're in love now become distasteful. You know, the pleasures of the world become almost unpleasant, like distasteful again. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's a new way of living. And so I, I feel like in this passage, we're, we're just seeing the, 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 the great extent to which Paul is in love. I long to depart from this life. You know, life is Christ, death is gain. It's only somebody that's either crazy or in love would say. <laughs> so right, uh, this this first line, uh, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. I think that's a. I think that's an important point for us to to hit on, because I think, or maybe I'm just projecting here. I think for me, I'll say it for us, we we think of fruitful labor in this life. Right, that the best thing we can do is is live is live this live a life of holiness now, and that's true. That, that that is a very good thing to do, but it seems as though death is just sort of the end, mm. right? That's the end of things. But I think that's a, that's a pre-Christian way of viewing death, is that death brings to the death ends the life of holiness, mm-hmm. and that there's no way for Christ to be magnified in your death. It's like, but but actually, there is such thing as a good death, and there is life beyond this. Mm-hmm. So that if uh, I think it was Viktor Frankl, he said, you know, people are saddened by you know a life cut short, but it's not the length of life, but the quality. Yeah, that that really matters, and I think that's true of both the time that we have alive, but also that how we depart this life, mm-hmm. that a, a good death can magnify God, magnify Christ and can bear witness to him. And hopefully that good death 
will continue on into the the next stage of life. Right. Right. Uh, you and know, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, as a as a priest, you've you know min- administered the sacraments towards the towards the ends of many you know many people's lives mm-hmm. that have come to an end, and you've been there to kind of see them on their way. And that sacrament is is a way to magnify Christ in death, right. and that Christ has touched all aspects of life, including that. Yeah, and and ultimately, that's that's the centrality of our faith is the cross is is an image of death, and that in death now we have life. Uh, and death is not something that ends all things, but actually uh, it almost magnifies all things, right? It's in our death where our life is accounted for, in a sense. And so and so, it, 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 death can almost be seen as um, the ultimate witness of your life. Uh, so, yeah, you're ab- yeah, absolutely. That is a very pre-Christian way to think that, like, death ends all things and I can no longer be glorious um, or, or, or holy now because uh, my like you know the, the end of my life has come. Uh, that's not the way Christians look at it. It's a very I think of like a Greek hero, right? It's like it what the Greek heroes are what they did now. Yeah. And perhaps maybe they had a glorious death, but then that's kind of the end of things. Yeah, right. But if they didn't have a glorious life, then it was like right. you know, all like that's it. But yeah. Um, but that's not the Christian view. Yeah. Right. I think. No, uh, right. But, uh, you know, I, and I think, you know, th- to be fair to the, to the Greeks and Romans, <laughs> there was a sense, like, like you said, it, it, there's glory in battle and, and, and glory to be had in a, um, in a death that's, uh, you know, if it's for your country, if you died courageously. Uh, and these people who die gloriously, uh, you know, for, for honor, they kind of live on in memory, right? But in Christianity, that's given uh, a much higher significance that we don't just live on in in people's memory, but we live on in God's memory. And and, and that's something that's not just a f- uh, an imagination, right? Uh, an imagining, but something that's real. Um, so, Yeah. So moving on to our gospel from Matthew 20, yes. the, the parable of... The, the vineyard, ge- yes, the so, laborers, and the gen- and generous landowner, right? Yes, the parable, of the the generous landowner, and perhaps the envious workers, uh, workers, La- laborers, yes, the, the laborers. <laughs> um, so in this parable, we have, yeah, the landowner goes out. He's looking for laborers to hire. He hires the the first ones that he sees for the usual daily wage in the morning. In the morning, you know, it was at dawn, and then he goes. Back out at nine, hires more, goes out, but at noon, then at three, then at five, and, and hires everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end, he gives them, he lines them all up and gives them their, their daily wage. And so he summons, uh, what, beginning with the last and ending with the first. Yeah. So he begins with those who start at five, and they receive a full day's wage. And so the ones that were hired at dawn say, "Wow, this is great. We're going to get more, way more money, way more money." Yeah. Because if they got a daily, you know, whole daily wage and they only worked an hour or whatever it was, we're going to get a lot more. Yeah, which is, I think, reasonable, right? I would yeah, think, yeah. I'd say, "Hey, well, that makes sense, right?" But then it comes to them and they get the usual wage, and they grumble and say, "These last ones worked only one hour, and you've made us equal to them." And then we bore the heat 
of the day. What's what's going on? And the landowner responds, you know, I'm not cheating you. I, you know, we agreed for the daily wage and I gave it to you. Take what is yours and go. Um, am I not free to do as I wish uh, with my own money? Are yeah. you envious because I am generous? Mm. Thus, the first, the last will be first. The first will be last. Yeah. So there's a number of interpretations of this passage. You have, you know, is it salvation history? Is it a commentary on the final judgment? Is it a commentary on the various stages of when people convert? You know, you have a deathbed conversion in the mm-hmm. last hour. Yeah, right. You know, this is a... Peterson's actually talked about this, but th- this is a common critique, I think, of perhaps some uh, atheists or, yeah. you know, or or non-believers. That, like, it's not... How is it fair that someone converts in the last hour right. whereas somebody has been struggling their whole life? You know, yeah. how's that fair? Um, well, but, and, and to Peterson's point, you know, he said a true conversion is actually painful. Yes. And he said, like, confronting all your sins, and if you actually regret them at the end of your life, that is uh, a level of existential pain that, you know, we can only imagine. Right. Uh, so it's not just like, oh, you know, I-, I wish to go to heaven, so I'm going to believe in God, and then you die, and everything's fine. Right. That's not what we mean by a deathbed conversion. So. Right. I yeah. think that's a bit of a straw man sometimes, because yes. yep. people portrayed as disingenuous yep. and just trying to sneak in, and... Sure, that happens, but I, when when we say a deathbed conversion, we mean an actual yeah. conversion, not just something like you said. Oh, like sure, I'll, I'll believe in God if it you know makes yeah. me go to heaven or whatever. I don't care. But it's if someone actually gives in to this conversion, that's it's painful, right? And uh, and if it's you know the two ways of uh, being contrite for your sins is through the fear of hell and through the love of God, right? The uh, perfect and imperfect, right? If it's imperfect and you're, you know, you want to convert because you fear hell, how much greater is that fear if your whole life was full of sin, right? That would be, that would be enough to just end your life right there, <laughs> that right. fear. And so uh, you can't, I don't think it's right to trivialize that. Um, and then, you know, if more ideally the person who's dying on their deathbed uh, is filled with a love of God and th- that they regret their sins, then that's even more painful because you see how the ideal God himself stands in judgment of your sins and how that which you love is now tainted with an entire life full of debauchery, right? So in both cases, um, it, it would be a painful experience. Right, right. So You know, imperfect contrition does, does is something. It does. It's, yeah, it's it, not, is, it, it is something, but we also... Just because it's imperfect doesn't mean that it's easy, right? Mm-hmm. It's like this yeah. is the easy way. It's like no, being afraid of what your sins can do is, yeah, is a frightening aspect. So it is. Yeah. Um. I I'd, I'd like to hit on, kind of I guess this notion of, uh, God's ways again, as well as envy. Mm-hmm. So, Matthew twenty fifteen towards the end of this passage, uh, in, in our lectionary, it kind of says, you know, am I not free to do with my money as I wish, or are you envious because I'm generous, which is, uh, I think, probably the, the the plain English way of saying it. Um, although in the Greek, it doesn't mention money. He just says, am I not free to do with my own? Mm. So I'm, I'm, am I not free to dispose of my property as a whole? Yeah. But also, the are you envious because I'm jealous, or, or jealous, because I'm, <laughs> are you envious because I'm generous? Um, the actual Greek is, 
is your eye evil because I am good? Mm. Or something like that. Or is your something about this this evil eye? Vision, right? Vision, yeah. right? Yeah. And you, you mentioned something before the podcast about the kind of etymology of yes. envious. Yeah, and so uh, I learned this when I was reading Dante's um, Purgatorio. Dante gets to uh, the level of the envious, and their punishment, uh, the contrapasso, right? Uh, like their suffering that's fitting to their crime, is uh, their eyes are sewn shut with uh, like iron threads. And the reason why Dante has this punishment for the envious is because envy, strictly spe- speaking, is to see things backwards. Uh, envidia. Uh, which is Latin, uh, video is I see. Mm-hmm. So N video is to to see things invertedly. And so that's what envious people are uh, are essentially doing is they're seeing things not the way God sees, but the way that a sinful person would see. And so when you're envious, you see the good that is bestowed on your neighbor. You should be rejoicing with them and happy that such such fortune has has come upon them. But because of our fallen state, we can tend to be envious and grow sad at another person's um, uh, prospering. Uh, that's, it, it, there's also a level of a chadia there, right? Like when, when you see something good happen to your neighbor, uh, that you grow sad at that. Uh, and, and so, yeah, that's an inverted way of perceiving others. Uh, well, I, I think that etymology is, is exactly it, right? Because it's, Envy is selfishness. You're you're, you're thinking yeah. about your own good, and the classic definition of envy is you know is kind of a sadness or grief at the good of another. Yeah. It's fortune. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's a part in that definition that I want to hit on is that it's sadness or grief over the good fortune of another, insofar as it seems to detract from your own fortune. Oh yeah. So right, it right. seem it seems right. to. It doesn't actually. You know, if if you say you found twenty bucks outside. And I'm envious. Well, it's it's not as though you found twenty dollars in my wallet and took it. Right, right. You know, exactly. it's like because that actually you, it has no effect on your life. Right, really. right. But it's, you perceive it as having an effect. Exactly. It's yeah. like well, I, that should be my twenty dollars. Right, right. It's like okay, it's not. It's his. Yeah. You, you know, it's not. You didn't find it. But I should be happy for you. You know, a holy envious. Be like, oh, I wish I found twenty dollars. That's nice. Yeah. And, you know, go go enjoy some. Wendy's across the street. <laughs> That's a lot of Wendy's for 20 bucks. <laughs> well, you know, these days with inflation, yeah, know, right. gets you a t- uh, four-piece McNugget. Do they still do the four for four? Yes, they do. So okay. A friend of mine got it the other day. Okay. That's the only reason why I know. <laughs> he said. Not me, a yeah, friend, right? right. <laughs> a guy I know that do the St. Teresa of Avila move. You know, someone I know yeah. experienced this. Um, um, but funny. It, anyway, but it's, it's this... It's it's interesting because in this passage it seems like the eye is on the your neighbor's good, yeah. But it's also inverted to think about your own, you right? Know, and and I love that the original Greek it says, uh, "Is your eye? What was it? Is your eye evil? Is yes. That how it's, yeah. So which, this evil eye, yeah, uh, which yeah. goes again to that, yeah, the etymology of envious to see things backwards, uh, and ultimately that's the that's the fault of the grumbling laborers, is that they're not even focused with the good that they're receiving. They're so focused on what's outside of them that they can't even be, they can't even enjoy uh, the good that they're receiving. Mm-hmm. 
and this is, I mean, this is just, I think any, everybody could relate to this, is that the more focused we are on others and uh, our relationship to others in, a, in, a, in an external um, way, like a material way, um, that's just going to cause less peace in our own hearts. Um, it's a recipe for being uh, resentful, one. Um, before the podcast, you mentioned like this, uh, the, the envy of Cain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where he's looking at what his brother is giving up to our Lord and how the Lord is gracious on uh, Abel. And that causes the downfall of them both, ultimately. Yes. It ends with Abel's murder, but it also, it just eats Cain up inside that he can't even, he can't even enjoy um, his relationship with God. It's not like he's, you know, yes, his sacrifices might be lacking, but he still has this relationship with God. Uh, right, so. right. Well, I mean, there is, just as there's righteous anger, there is holy envy, which is a, a sadness for your own lack of virtue. Mm, okay. you, know, you, see, you see someone growing yeah. in virtue, and you say, I should have those virtues. Right. Good, you're, you rejoice. You're like, I'm glad that you have them. I wish I, I should have them. Mm. And I'm almost ashamed that I don't. Right. So Cain could have had a holy envy and said, look at how Abel's sacrifices are being accepted. What is he doing mm-hmm. that, he, that I should do, that he's being accepted by God? Maybe that's what, and, and God gives him that chance. Says, if you change your heart, your accept your sacrifices will be accepted, but instead yeah. you're envious yeah. of your brother. Yeah, exactly. And you want, I mean, he ends up literally taking taking it so far that he takes his brother's life. Yeah. As opposed to saying, you know, what can I learn here? What is my brother doing that I should do? He lets the resentment fester to the point of death. Yeah. You know, instead of actually being grateful for what he's been given and then letting that grow, you know, I'm reminded also of. Um, the, the passage in the Gospels where our Lord says, um, uh, "To mu- to what is it? To those who have received, much will be given, and those who have not, even what little they have, will be taken away." I think one of the ways we can understand that passage is in relation to this: that seeing when we grow envious of others, like the landowners um, uh, that are grumbling in, in our gospel today, when they when they're grumbling, it's like they don't even recognize what they have. And so, in a sense, they perceive what they have as being little. And even that is taken away, in a sense. Like, they're not even able to enjoy the fruit of their labor labors. Mm-hmm. However, if they recognized it as a gift from the landowner, saying, like, I see my wage cut off from whatever anybody else might be receiving. I see it as a gift and I recognize it as being good. Then that will be able to grow in them. That gift will be able to grow in them. And they, in a sense, they're given more, right? Uh, Not materially, not uh, monetarily, but their enjoyment and their gratitude towards what they've been given um, is something that money can't afford them. right? Right. So... Because as the landowner says, I'm, I'm not cheating you. Yeah, you this agreed, is what you agreed to. You right. agreed with me. We had a yeah. contract that said a daily wage. So instead of the workers perhaps marveling at the landowner and saying, wow, you know, this is a very generous person. And if these people who worked only for one hour, they wouldn't, maybe they wouldn't be able to feed their families or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But this landowner is so generous and so kind that he ensures that all of his people are able to. Yeah. To to have the right amount of right. money. But instead they, they saw it 
as a loss to themselves. Yeah. And there's also um, a sense that, you know, this goes back to this idea of wisdom. Uh, having you know, the foolish have such a narrow perspective on reality that they make these pronouncements that show their foolishness. Uh, you know, I think a truly wise person would be grateful because they say, yes, those people received more than me, but there are also others that receive less than me too, right? And in, in our own suffering uh, and whatever we're going through, can we say that we have it the worst? There are people that suffer every day that are much more grateful than we are, <laughs> right? And so to have that wider perspective and say, some people are not given the gifts that I've been given. Some people are given more. But again, it's not up to us to look at others and judge them and saying, like, why is God, you know, showering his gifts in one way or not another? Focus on what you have. Be grateful for what you have. Um, turn that, turn your eye inward <laughs> right. uh, and, and, and focus on yourself and the grace that you've been given is enough. So, Yeah, envy really is a, a, a deadly sin um, when, when you look at it, certainly scripturally, because you have a, a commentary from the Book of Wisdom talking about how it was by envy that death entered the world, mm. that that the devil was envious of Adam and Eve, and he kind of, because of that, seduced them and, yeah. and brought death. Right. And then you have Cain as well, an, an, an envious sin. St. Augustine, uh, in his in book two of Confessions, has a little, he kind of goes through a litany of, of I guess vices, I would say, vices or sins, and shows how by imitating those vices, you're actually perversely imitating God. Yes, yeah, so, yeah that's one of my favorite passages. I, I, yeah, I really yeah. like that one. Um, and he says, envy, envy vies for supremacy, but what is supreme over you? Yeah. So what is happening in this, in this passage, in this gospel, I think, is they, they want supremacy, in, in a way, they they're saying, if I was the landowner, I would know what to do. Mm-hmm. I right, I would exactly. I would justly give each one. So this is sometimes a common, another common critique from uh, atheists is this idea that humans are more just than God. Hmm. You know, it's like, right. well, if God had the power to do all these things, how come He doesn't? Yeah. You know, if you had the power, wouldn't you? And in this passage, it's the same thing. It's like, well, if I was a landowner, I, I would know who deserves what, mm. and I would distribute that fairly, whereas you have distributed it unfairly. But God is not only pure power. Right, yeah. He, he also has knowledge and goodness. Yeah. Which, if you had the same ability, perhaps you would realize that when God doesn't do something or does do something, it's for a reason you have no idea. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and to that, yeah, that again, that goes back to this foolish perspective where it's like, if, if I were God, I would do things differently. It's like, based on your limited perspective, that might benefit you in the present. But you have no idea what lies outside of your perspective right. and what lies outside of your own lifespan. Right, and that, that's so you're basing, you're you're again making these like profound pronouncements based off such limited information, right. <laughs> essentially. Right. So you could say here, 
the workers who were hired at dawn have the limited information of these guys were hired only an hour ago. And that's all they know. And that's that's all <laughs> right, they know. Exactly. But yeah. in the gospel, the landowner goes out and sees them and says, you know, what what have you like why are you why are you idle? Why have you been here? And they say, Well, no one would hire us. Mm-hmm. So you could imply that they've actually been out all day. And yeah. looking for work. Looking or, for yeah. work. And he's right. saying, you know, I won't hold that against you that no that no one hired you. And your goodwill is that you wanted work, but you just no one would hire. So mm-hmm. I'm going to take you. I'm, I'll take you in and give you the full day's wage as yeah. if you worked. And expanding it further to God, I know that if you don't receive this, what will happen? Mm-hmm. You know, your family will starve. So I'm going to give you that. But the earlier workers see, oh well, only an hour. That's not fair. Yeah, that's it's all. Like, they, that's all they see. But yeah, yeah. if again, if you had the perspective of the landowner, you might say, oh well, this. If they don't get the money, their children will starve. What would you do? Yeah. Well, I'd give them the full day's wage. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but you don't know that. Yeah. You only have your limited perspective on what is owed. Yeah, exactly. And what is deserved. Yep. Apparently. So, I, yeah. I think it's this uh, reading is a, a a warning, I think, of careful, careful, I guess, what you think people deserve. Yeah. And sometimes you don't get what you deserve, and, and that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Oh well, and and if I would take it a step further and saying, who are you to judge what should and shouldn't be given to other people? Yeah, I'm thinking of uh, when I read this passage, I thought of Gandalf to Frodo. Mm. Oh yeah, uh, some uh, some who die deserve life, right? And others who live deserve death, right? That's yeah. right, because Frodo sees, at least in the the movies, sees Gollum and says it's a pity. Yeah, that that's Bo- in the Bilbo, books too. Yep. Bilbo, yeah, it's been so long since, yeah. so I couldn't remember. Uh, it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. Yeah. And then Gandalf says it to him, like, who are you? Yeah. It was pity him. that stayed his hand. Right. Um, actually, that's um, a lot of people point to that passage as the crux of the entire trilogy. Uh, because ultimately, Frodo shares the same pity as Bilbo. And he doesn't kill Gollum. And then Sam is the one who presses Frodo, saying, like, Gollum should be killed. Like in by the order of justice, like he's a villain, and we shouldn't, you know, keep him around. You know, as, this is you know the great mind of Tolkien is that to an extent both of them are right. You know, I think in justice they could have killed uh, a Gollum, and Gollum ends up betraying uh, Sam and Frodo. But there's a higher power, there's a higher power than just Sam, Frodo, and Gollum, and that higher power works for the good. Right. It, 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 well, it, it is goodness itself. And so it was it was Frodo's pity that ended up allowing Gollum to attack him in Mount Doom, where the ring was then accidentally dropped into the fire. <laughs> right. um, if Frodo would have killed Gollum and saying this is my perspective of reality, uh, you know, my justice, uh, my way, then... Frodo would have taken the ring to Sauron, ultimately. And so over the grand scheme of things, we see that, yeah, our our ways are not God's ways. (laughs) Uh, And there is a higher power that we're beholden to. That at the end, when the veil is finally removed, we can say, I see how things worked out. Right. Um, Right. And that's the the struggle on this side. I think that's a great closing point. But that's the struggle on this side of eternity is it seems as though God is acting arbitrarily. 
Yeah, or and, unfair or, or unfair. unjustly. Yeah. And, and you see it again in the, in the gospel. It's it seems as though it's it, God just well, this is how I this is how I will things. Or yeah. I, I he's aloof or he doesn't care. But there's this trust that all things work for the good of those who love God. Yeah, exactly. That divine providence is actually working for for you mm-hmm. and not against you. Yeah. But it you're right, it's not until you're on the other side that you'll see, you know, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Yeah, exactly. Yep. But that's what St. Therese of Lisieux says, that in heaven he will show that his thoughts are not men's thoughts, and then the last will be first. And if it's good enough for her, it's good enough for me. So Yeah, that's that's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much for listening. Um, remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. As well as, if you have any questions for us, please email us at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.